Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. I want to point out that stocks are higher. They are spiking just a little bit because we have word that President Trump has approved a revised stimulus package. This is coming from Larry Kudlow, who's speaking on Fox Business right now. Again, President Trump has approved a revised stimulus package. He spoke with Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, and the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin. Of course, we all know that he is just one of the people involved in all of this, right? The Democrats also have to sign on to anything and uh, obviously the Republicans have to sign on, although presumably they would. We don't know what's in this revised stimulus package. We'll see how much comes out, but it does signal a willingness for President Trump to do a U-turn on that idea that he was uh, completely shutting down all stimulus package conversations. We'll talk about more of that in a moment, but uh, while we await more details, let's bring in Eric Malchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Eric, obviously this is changing the narrative for the day, but do talk to us about everything that's happened this week in terms of Morgan Stanley buying Eaton Vance and also you know, Vanguard returning assets to China's state funds. There's a lot going on in the ETF space. Yeah, no, this is giant asset managers doing big things. Uh, starting with the Morgan Stanley, um, this was a little bit of a shock. Um, apparently, Eaton Vance went to Morgan Stanley, which I don't blame them. If I'm running a legacy mutual fund shop and I don't really have a strong ETF game or passive game, um, I would look to go to uh, merge with people, get really big. That way you have scale and you can lower fees and maybe compete uh, more aggressively, get some extra distribution. So it makes sense logistically. I do think that uh, what Morgan Stanley was after with Eaton Vance was direct indexing, which is sort of like separately managed accounts that are for advisors. We think that uh, demand is overstated. Uh, if you look, direct indexing maybe took in three, four, five billion this year. ETFs have taken in about 350. So, you know, th- it's going to be tough for Morgan Stanley to compete against ETFs and traditional index funds with these ventures. But for now, it's, uh, I think, a smart move by them because the bigger you get, then it's easier to lower the fees. And that is really the name of the game and uh, where a lot of the flows are going is, is funds that are on the cheaper side. So uh, that's the, the Morgan Stanley uh, situation. So uh, pretty good, but I, I think they'll struggle long term without that ETF solution. So you know, what is ETF solution for a big shop like a Morgan Stanley? Do you buy? Do you build? How do you really increase your share there? 
Here's what everybody's doing. They're basically buying the end customer. And so if you, Morgan Stanley has a bunch of advisors. If you have access and in, in distribution, we call a captive audience, then you can pretty much give, you have some control over what you give them. The question is, even that captive audience, I just don't, I don't know if they're going to want a Calvert mutual fund. A Calvert ESG mutual fund charges, you know, let's say 70 to 80 basis points. You can get a Vanguard ESG ETF or BlackRock one for 10 to 15. And so the ETF is just so much cheaper. It's liquid. Mm-hmm. It's tax efficient. So it's difficult, even with the captive audience, to do that. But a lot of the issuers, Goldman, uh, Vanguard, Schwab, what they're doing is they have ETFs and they can um, use their captive audience, get some assets and flows, and then that g- brings people outside of the captive audience to those ETFs. So that's the new name of the game is, is have some investors lined up, launch your ETFs, get assets in there and try to attract uh, retail investors outside of that. Morgan Stanley appears to be doing something like that. They're just going to try to use direct indexing and mutual funds to do it. And I just think it'll be harder without the ETF. Yeah, it's so interesting how the landscape is changing. I mean, I guess it, it, it always needs to change. We have a great story on the Bloomberg today about wealthy American families being told by their advisors they need to act now or risk losing millions of dollars in case Democrats win back the White House and Senate and all of the loopholes that President Trump ushered in in terms of estate tax rules get reversed. How much does this impact the ETF space, Eric? I mean, are these people that sort of buy ETFs or is that not even in their sphere of uh, of vision? Um, so, you know, uh, Obama, before he left, he had tried to put through the uh, this fiduciary rule that Trump dismantled. That fiduciary rule, if Biden were to win and reinforce that, um, which we think is a pretty good rule, basically just says if you're a wealth manager and you're advising clients, you need to keep their best interest at heart. Um, it's really sad they need a rule for that. But anyway, they, that's the rule. <laughs> and so essentially that would mean that best interest would mean cheap. And you uh, possibly could be sued or yelled at if you put somebody in, say, a mutual fund because you got a, you know, a commission on it or something. So the more that fiduciary rule uh, is in play, the better it would be for ETFs and passive. Now, if they put taxes on trading or capital gains, um, I, I don't know, maybe that would hurt everybody at the same time and ETFs would be part of that. Uh, the other thing is a Biden um, administration, uh, Mike McGlone was just writing, and I agree with him, could be better for a Bitcoin ETF to be launched. We think that um, that's ultimately positive, too. So, But Biden, unlike Bernie, is pretty moderate. Uh, so I don't see a ton changing. I just I think that DOL, the DOL rule, otherwise known as the fiduciary rule, is probably the main thing to keep your eye on if Biden wins. Hey, Eric, I uh, saw a story on the Bloomberg uh, Vanguard returning $21 billion in assets to China's state funds. What's going on there? Yeah, this is uh, unique. Uh, I honestly didn't know they managed that much for the Chinese government. Um, you know, when we look at Vanguard, their international exposure is pretty weak compared to other issuers like BlackRock, because mostly in other places, there's a commission-based system, um, and they haven't moved to that fee-based fiduciary system, which is mostly you know happening in the U.S. Anyway, um, for all intents and purposes, what happened here is they're just giving back a $21 billion that they manage for institutions, that is a tough business. Institutions want you to do all this work for like one basis point, and it's just a lot of effort. So they want to give that back and put their focus on what I call the holy grail, which is the retail investor in China. You know, there's a billion people there. It's like three Americas. And what <laughs> they've done is teamed up with Ant Financial and a robo-advisor, and they're hoping that they can uh, do what they did here, 
over there because that would uh, the robo advisor is fee based right up their alley. So I think they're just streamlining their focus away from institutions onto retail. Interesting, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us. We always love talking about the ETF business. Nobody better on the street to do it than Eric Balchunas. He's been doing the ETFs uh, since I think the beginning of the ETF business for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's a senior ETF analyst. And Vani, it's, it's just interesting here as we think about the ETF business, the fee differential is so key and it's such an attractive uh, uh, vehicle for retail investors. Yeah, for sure. And some of them don't last very long and some of them are, are around forever. So definitely, you know, uh, an area to study if you're get, getting involved in them. But Paul, I just want to return to the stimulus headline. I mean, this yep. changes the dynamic going into the weekend once again. If the president is willing to, for talks to go ahead, does suddenly Nancy Pelosi become more willing to reach a deal? Or was it was it fine that, it, that we weren't going to have a deal before the election for the Dems? We'll see, but stocks certainly moving higher. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The International Council of Shopping Centres' Holiday Shopping Intentions Survey is out. It's hard to believe it's coming close. We're already in the middle of October. And so let's welcome Tom McGee, President and Chief Executive Officer of the ICSC. And Tom, there's a lot to unpack in here. You represented a a sample of 1,004 US respondents, but your members number over 70,000. So before we get to what seems to be rosier than you might expect outlook, talk to us about how your members are faring right now. How many are open? How many are losing money? Uh, well, good morning, and thanks for having me on. I, you know, I think we're in a very, you know, uncertain environment. Uh, obviously, you know, the uh, our industry is at the epicenter of, of the pandemic, uh, stay-at-home orders and other safety requirements. And so I, I think it varies uh, depending upon where you are in the country and obviously, you know, the nature of retail um, that you offer. But I think generally Speaking, our members have done a good job of managing through a unprecedented period of time. Uh, we are looking forward to the holiday season and, and expect it to be, I would say, solid uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but most most uh, significantly, because I think consumer spending over the course of this past year has been less than you know we would have hoped for, given the pandemic, and people will lean in more significantly into the holiday as a result. So, Tom, just give us a sense um, of kind of mall traffic, I guess, if you will. I'm not sure how you guys really measure it. Mall traffic uh, this year, how how down is it? Well, I think it clearly, clearly traffic will be down this year for obvious reasons. I mean, there's, you know, obvious occupancy restrictions. I mean, clearly the consumer is concerned about uh, safety and security. I think a lot of uh, the malls have done a lot, obviously, to try to alleviate those concerns, everything from mass requirements to, you know, putting up you know, one-way aisles and contact barriers and the retailers as well. But, you know, this holiday season, you know, e-commerce will continue to grow. I think the trends that we've seen over the course of the pandemic will continue to be front and center. 
uh, use of e-commerce, but those retailers that really merge their e-commerce platforms with their physical retail platforms will do the best. Uh, you will see a continuation of things like curbside pickup and click and collect, et cetera, be front and center, um, particularly during the holiday season where there'll be significant you know, there'll be significant tension in just the delivery system, given the, you know, the volume that'll take place and people will want the comfort of going and doing pick, uh, curbside pickup uh, to make sure that they have the goods in place. I, I also think I, I would not, you know, I wouldn't read too much into this year as it relates to a future trend. I mean, it's hard to know how all of these things will impact, you know, the long-term nature of the way people shop uh, and retail. I do know right now, um, you know, certainly the consumer is going to put safety uh, front and center, uh, and they're much more efficient in their shopping. I mean, they're much more purposeful. If you go to a store, you're much more likely to know exactly what you want to purchase. You're going to go purchase it, and you're going to leave. And and that's, again, back to safety and, and a focus upon that. So, Tom, your outlook forecasts increased spending with a longer holiday shopping season helping out in that regard. That's a rosy outlook. Does it depend on stimulus? And if we don't get stimulus, will this forecast change entirely? Yeah, I think there's it's a, obviously it's a very difficult year to make a forecast. And so I think when we look at um, that 1.9% spending increase, you know, it, it assumes that things like stimulus uh, would take place. It, it certainly assumes that the unemployment uh, picture remains stable. Uh, and it's certainly, you know, that we've managed, the pandemic is managed effectively over the course of the next number of months. If government stimulus does not come through, which I think is critical, not just for our industry, but for the overall economy, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, and there's significant spikes uh, in the virus, obviously that's going to have a negative impact upon our forecast. You know, what's driving our forecast, quite frankly, is is if you look at uh, people are spending a lot less on things that they traditionally spent things on, spent money on, going out to eat, for example, entertainment, for example. And so that, we believe that some of that money that would have historically been spent on those things will be contributed to holiday spending. And and I think, you know, family uh, is is highly important right now, uh, and, and uh, parents with kids will likely invest uh, in the holiday uh, to try to help kids that are obviously going through a challenging period of time as well through the pandemic. Tom, just give us a sense here. We hear that the U.S. is still way overstored, that uh, shopping, uh, that these uh, retailers need to cut their store count. How do you view that? Well, I think it's hard to measure that right now because you don't really, you know, again, we're in the midst of kind of an unprecedented period of time. I, I, I think what I would generally say is that those retailers that went into the pandemic in, you know, relatively stable shape with a strong balance sheet um, are going to emerge from the pandemic, um, you know, okay. Uh, those retailers that went into the pandemic uh, where they were suffering from a declining uh, declining revenue and did not have a strong balance sheet. Obviously, we've seen the ramifications of it, and we've seen you know a lot of store closures. It's hard for me to predict you know how what the long term impact of that will be once we emerge from the pandemic. I'm quite confident uh, of of really two things. One, I think you know the industry has gone through lots of shocks yep. in the past. Nothing quite like this, <laughs> but it's gone right. through lots of shocks. And it'll emerge from this. But and, and I think retailers are very yep. uh, entrepreneurial and innovative. And, and I think that they will uh, they will adapt as well. 
Hey, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts. Tom McGee, President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Council of Shopping Centers, giving us his thoughts about the retail holiday shopping season coming up. Well, President Donald Trump is planning to get back on the campaign trail. The question is, is that wise for someone who has recently been diagnosed with COVID-19? To get the answers to that and other questions, we welcome Lauren Sauer, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at John Hopkins School of Medicine. I should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, as well as this radio and TV operation. Uh, Dr. Sauer, thanks so much for joining us here. So again, President Trump is itching to get back on the, the campaign trail, potentially having a rally, I guess, uh, tomorrow. Is that wise for someone who, again, has recently been diagnosed with COVID-19? No, in fact, it, it, it actually violates the CDC guidelines about self-isolation. Um, I think a lot of people saw the um, interview that he had with uh, Sean Hannity where he was coughing and we've seen him, you know, having these challenging breathing processes on video in both his return from Walter Reed, but also in more recent videos. And anyone who sees that can see that he is still experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and should definitely be self-isolating for a minimum of two weeks. Is there a point beyond which remdesivir and dexamethasone and whatever else he's taking stops becoming useful? All of these drugs um, have different periods of utility and are given it at different times. And it's important to remember that they're all still experimental for the treatment of COVID-19 or or infection with SARS-CoV-2. So we don't actually know the full breadth of um, of how and when the drugs are useful. I think remdesivir, we have a lot of information on this, um, you know, ten, five and 10 day course of of them, uh, oftentimes administered in the hospital or almost exclusively administered in the hospital. With Regeneron, we, you know, you want to see in these monoclonal antibodies, the patients being monitored, their antibody levels routinely being checked. Um, and, and honestly, we don't often discharge people so quickly with steroids like uh, the president was with Desimexazone, and um, so that is a is a concerning sort of development in how that drug was administered, and then how he's monitored post administration. So, Professor, this Regeneron treatment, how were is that something that you think is going to be widely deployed for patients? I'm just wondering how the uh, President Trump's doctors kind of zeroed in on that uh, as a potential treatment, um, and it appears at least to be successful in the president's case? Yeah, I think we can't really know if it was successful in the president's case because we we don't have a lot of data uh, in a nice, well-designed clinical trial. And so, you know, there's so many factors that go into the president's medical care. He is getting the best of the best medical care. And so one of the reasons we use clinical trials is to weed out some of those confounding factors. Um, you know, standard of care, the other things he's been given, the supportive care he got, the fluids, all of those other things when he made it in his way into the hospital. So while it is probably, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably learn a lot more about these, uh, these monoclonal antibodies soon as they go through this clinical trial protocol. Um, we can't really say explicitly. Uh, we can guess that they helped, but we can't say explicitly that they did. Um, we use monoclonal antibodies and monoclonal antibody cocktails in many other situations, and they are effective, um, and we know their utility, which is, I'm sure, why Regeneron 
and many other uh, pharmaceutical companies have gone down the path of creating them for COVID-19. But until we have that good clinical trial data, we just can't make any generalizations from this one very specific, very high level of care case. Yeah. Dr. Sauer, is physical exertion detrimental beyond a certain point? So we know the doctors recommend that you stay active and that you try and keep all of your bodily functions as functioning as possible during this. It's not really helpful to rest. In fact, if anything, it just gives the virus a a better chance. But beyond a certain point, you, you have to ask the question, if the president is getting better... Is there a chance that he'll relapse by exerting himself so much, going on rallies, being on TV every night and every morning? Yeah, it's absolutely a risk. And, you know, he's on dexamethasone or it was when he was discharged. And so steroids can make you feel better in the moment, a lot better in the moment. Um, and so he, he does have the potential to sort of overdo it um, and overexert and possibly cause challenges to his breathing and his recovery um, and and potentially do more harm to himself. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a physician, so I, I, and I'm not on his clinical care team, uh, but I will say that there we have seen in our data, at least from Hopkins, but also I think more broadly across the globe, that people do have these short-term recoveries and then um, get a lot worse. So if you overdo it in that short-term recovery space, you have the potential to get a lot worse um, and and not recover as, as effectively as you did that first go-around. So just real quickly, Doctor, um, I think President Trump is going to get a medical exam on Tucker Carlson tonight <laughs> on by the Fox. Doctor, what should we be looking for there? You know, I'm honestly not sure there's much to look for there. I think it it seems from everything I've heard like it will be a publicity stunt. Um, We have seen this doctor who is going to be examining him push uh, misinformation about uh, hydroxychloroquine and about um, the, the risks associated with coronavirus and how it was not much different than the flu. Um, So I think a lot of it is going to be a narrative that, the president potentially is pushing and that, you know, the findings are not going to actually tell us much about his medical status or his medical care. Certainly um, he would not let anything go out that, that says that anything beyond the narrative that he's controlling about his recovery and his wellness. So I think we're going to get very limited information about how well he is doing. And in fact, I think he's creating a falseness that he is not infectious and safe and healthy um, that has the potential to do some detriment to the broader understanding of how we manage yes. um, post-hospital discharge. Uh, it, it would be funny, except a lot of people will be watching, and so it's not at all funny. Dr. Lauren Sauer, thank you very much. Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, we have some deal activity in the chips business. AMD in talks to buy rival Xilinx for $30 billion. To break down the details, we welcome Anand Srinivasan, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is one of the top uh, chip analysts on the street, and we appreciate getting some of his time. So Anand, 
Big number here, $30 billion deal. What do you make of it? Yeah, it's uh, – hey, Paul, good morning. Uh, thank you for having me. So this is, in our view, of both an offensive as, a, as well as a defensive uh, deal for AMD. If you look at what's happening in the computing space, I mean, this I've used this ice cream shop analogy before, which is that computing mm. has been evolving from an ice cream shop that contains mostly vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate into a remarkably diverse ice cream shop with multiple flavors. You have general purpose GPUs that AMD and NVIDIA make. You have FPGAs that Xilinx and Altera make. And all of these ice cream buckets, if you may, have been expanding in size and expanding in use because of the different kinds of workloads we've been seeing, which in turn is being driven by the cloud. So Intel has this wide library of assets, um, and but they haven't been able to, to put it together. So simply put, their ice cream machine is broken. What is NVIDIA doing? NVIDIA has been able to put together specialty ice cream buckets in terms of Mellanox and in terms of general purpose GPUs very effectively. And with the ARM deal, it is now dramatically expanding into the vanilla, strawberry, and chocolate mainstay flavors. So AMD was, up, up until this point, doing um, really well in vanilla, strawberry, chocolate, taking share from Intel, but its specialty flavors are weak. So this Xilinx deal gives them access to wider array of specialty ice cream buckets, as well as being able to play in the mainstream flavor. So the computing market is changing, and uh, AMD is, is responding partially to uh, accelerated share gains from Intel and partially to have an alternative to both the Intel platform and the NVIDIA platform for the next decade. Xilinx Anand makes programmable ships for wireless networks. Does it want to get acquired? Look, at this point, um, we have talked about this in the semiconductor industry, um, is that um, scale matters, platforms matter, right? So if you look at what Intel's capability is, it's been able to put together or has, at least on paper, the ability to put together uh, these different ice cream sundaes for uh, specialty workloads for cloud computing, right? So if you are a specialty ice cream flavor and you're saying, I'm only going to make the topping or only the sprinkles or only the hot fudge sauce. You have you run the risk of being marginalized versus if you are part of a big ice cream shop, then your toppings are going to be more widely used. Your specialty ice cream flavor is going to be a part of uh, uh, a vast number of ice cream sundaes rather, I'm, being, I'm rather than so being relegated to smaller <laughs> We're talking about chips, right? <laughs> yes. But the ice, ice cream, cream analogy comes in handy, don't you think? <laughs> so, Anna, talk to us about valuation here. I'm looking at the uh, the Bloomberg Intelligence Research, and I see Xilinx here at 40 times uh, earnings. It seems like a big multiple to me. What's that mean for AMD? Yeah, so AMD is going to have to use a lot, a lot of its stock currency for them. So we think that, you know, roughly two-thirds stock, one-third cash, and that will maximize their leverage. We think... Um, I mean, if you look at what Broadcom's had four times EBITDA, we think that they could do this deal with uh, two-third, two-third equity, uh, one-third uh, debt-driven uh, debt cash. So that's the way we're thinking that the deal might be structured. Either way, there's going to be a lot of stock involved in this deal.
are they getting a better price because we're in pandemic times? Or, I mean, is there an actual extra premium because these companies have what we need right now? Yeah, so shockingly enough, the pandemic hasn't um, sort of dramatically altered the vector of computing. If anything, it's accelerated it. So we've heard this from all the cloud services companies. All the changes that we were expecting over the next few years have just been dramatically accelerated as a result of the pandemic and pushed or uh, pulled forward, right? And these are the building blocks that power those changes. So your Zoom call that you're on you know, six hours a day is being powered by these chips. So the fact that there's demand there means that uh, there's landscape changes uh, uh, beneath the hood, yeah. if you may. All right, Anand, keep us uh, honest and up to date. We know you will be following this throughout the day and into next week. Anand Srinivasan is Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. An ice cream analyst. Exactly. <laughs> Mint chocolate chip for me. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.